encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will declare you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You may say, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, but this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in this city. Your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine and plague, and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and an object of horror, of scorn and reproach, among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord. Words that I sent to them again and again by my, by, by my servants, the prophets. And you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Kaleah, and Zedekiah, son of Marcia who are prophesying lies to you in my name. I will deliver them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will put them to death before your very eyes. Because of them, all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. May the Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. For they have done outrageous things in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and in my name they have uttered lies, which I did not authorize. I know it, and am a witness to it, declares the Lord. Emily, thank you so much for reading that passage. It's only part of Jeremiah chapter 29, but thank you so much uh, for reading that for us. Uh, My name's David. I'm a member of the staff team here at Bishop Hannington as well. And uh, this evening we're going to be looking at that part of Jeremiah chapter 29 in perhaps a little bit more detail. Um, I don't know how you reacted to it as it was read. Uh, Some bits of it sound pretty grim. Uh, Some bits of it sound difficult, so let's pray that God would help us to understand it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that every part of your word is given to us to help us. It's given to help us to understand you better, to understand ourselves better, uh, and to understand how we can be, be at peace with you, Father. And so, Father, as we look at this chapter, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand from it the things that we need to understand uh, as we serve you and as we seek to live for you today. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. 
You know, it struck me that um, one of the problems that we have with a book like Jeremiah is perhaps one of the problems that we sometimes have with a story like, say, the story of Romeo and Juliet. You see, the thing about Romeo and Juliet is there won't be a happy ending. I mean, it wouldn't be a tragedy if there was, would it? And that's the thing about the book of Jeremiah. The one thing we know there is that there's not going to be a happy ending. Right at the start of the book, we have the ultimate spoiler. Chapter 1, we're told two things. We're going to be told when it starts and how it will end. Verse 2 of chapter 1, two, verse 2 of chapter 1 tells us that God called Jeremiah to be a prophet in the 13th year of King Josiah, while verse 3 tells us that it ended when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Right at the beginning of this book, we know how it's going to end. And it's not going to be a happy ending. If you want it underlined, look at verse 14 of chapter 1. You get a flavor of how it's going to go. From the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. For Judah, God's judgment was going to be complete. It was going to be comprehensive. It was going to be disaster for everyone there was going to be no happy ending. And what's the problem with this? Well, let's be honest. The problem with this is that we all love happy endings. I mean, who here can honestly say that they really enjoy stories where everyone dies and the world is destroyed? You know, it gets a bit grim after a while, doesn't it? No, we all love happy endings. Of course we do. No one wants a miserable ending. The people of Judah were just the same. They always believed there would be a happy ending, and perhaps they had more reason than many to actually have that idea that there would always be a happy ending. I mean, think back to the Lent course we did just uh, just in the run-up to Easter. You know, all this sort of stuff, you know, and that. You know, you remember, well, I'm sure, you know. I'm not going to go through that in case you're worried. Um, But... um, You know, what was one of the things that we learnt during the course of the Lent course as we were thinking about uh, the story of Israel and Judah? They were used to happy endings. Their history was this long cycle, this cycle of a a situation where the people turned their back on God and started worshipping other gods. And as a result, God judged them and gave them over to domination by foreign nations. Then the people come to their senses, they repent, they turn back to God, and God raises up a leader to deliver them from their enemies, and they're back where they started. There was always a happy ending. And for the northern kingdom of Israel, well, about a hundred years previously, that had been destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. But what had happened to Judah? Well, Judah had been attacked by the Assyrian Empire as well. Jerusalem had been besieged. It looks absolutely hopeless. And then God had intervened and miraculously delivered the city of Jerusalem and spared it. There'd always been a happy ending. But this time it was going to be different. This time there was no happy ending. 
At this point in Jeremiah's life, the first phase of God's judgment in Judah had taken place. God's judgment in Judah took place in two phases, separated by about ten years. Uh, and the exile, and the first phase had taken place in 597 BC when King Jehoiachin was deposed and taken as a captive to, the, by, to Babylon, along with most of the royal family, many other prominent people living in Judah, uh, most of Judah's army and most of its skilled for, workforce. You know, all the key people, all the really useful people had been taken away uh, to Babylon and, well, the rest were the rest and they were left in Jerusalem. In Jehoiachin's place, Babylonians placed his uncle Zedekiah on the throne as a sort of puppet kingdom. Now about three years has passed since then. And I could say that chapter, I guess you could say that chapter 29 is about what you do when things look hopeless. When there is no prospect of a happy ending. And life's reality is that sometimes, often, There aren't happy endings. Human relationships go sour. Misfortune and tragedy come from nowhere. Misunderstandings have disastrous consequences. Now, this happens, these sort of things happen partly because of the effect of the fall. We live in a sinful world. Sin has entered into the world. It's entered into the human heart. And one of the consequences of this is that things go wrong. Things go disastrously wrong sometimes. Life becomes messy and chaotic and unpredictable. And sometimes it becomes desperately sad. And on top of this, we also have to recognize that our God acts in human events. And sometimes, as the book of Jeremiah makes clear, in judgment on individuals and on nations. If this happens, what do you do? If human misfortune or or God's judgment means that for you there isn't a happy ending, how do you handle it? What do you do? Most of the chapter, most of the text of this chapter is a letter that Jeremiah sends to the leaders of the exiled community in Babylon. This quite large group of people had endured a a very long journey from Jerusalem to Babylon. Strangers in an alien land, they were floundering. They were struggling to understand what had happened to them. Unsure about what to do next. And in this letter, it is God speaking to Jeremiah. And he's telling the exiles, finding their way in Babylon as best they could, or not finding their way in Babylon in reality, he speaks to them about three things. And the first thing that God speaking through Jeremiah has to say is, get on with life. You see this in verses 5 to 7, where God's message to the exiles in Babylon is, well, it's very down-to-earth and practical. Build houses. Plant gardens. Get married. Have children. In other words, think long term. Put down roots. As it says in verse 5, settle down. Life is going to carry on, so you, you need to get on with life. Now, I suppose this should have been obvious to the exiles because God had warned them about what was going to happen. If you think back to what we were looking at in last Sunday in chapter 25, Jeremiah had warned the people of Judah that they would face God's judgment, that it would take the form of exile, and that it would last 70 years, a long time. But it hadn't registered. 
Maybe this was understandable. They were probably in shock. But there were other reasons. We'll come to one of them a little later on. But I'm sure there were others like, well, the temptation of self-pity, the temptation of inertia, and perhaps the temptation that they couldn't quite believe that there wasn't going to be a happy ending. And God's call to them was to resist those temptations. For the exiles, it was only going to get better when they started to make it better. And did you notice that there's a particular emphasis in God's call? Yes, it's get on with life, but it's also don't be inward looking. Don't be selfish. Don't just think of yourselves. Did you notice verse 7? Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you to exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper too. You know, it would have been very easy for the exiles to turn in on themselves and look after number one, but that's not what God is calling them them to. God is calling them to bless the city in which he has placed them. They weren't in Babylon by accident. It wasn't a random event. You know, God didn't sort of put a pin in a map and said, okay, you're going there, folks. No, God had thought this through. God had planned this. God had a purpose for it. He had deliberately put them in that place as opposed to, well, anywhere else. God is calling them to bless that city, to do what makes for growth, and above all, to do what makes for peace. It was a call to give the captives something through their enterprise, to seek its prosperity and peace. In other words, to work for it and also through their prayers to pray for it. He's calling them to have a generous spirit. Generous spirit to who? Well, to Babylon. Towards their captives. Towards their oppressors. And it's not just about creating some sort of win-win situation for personal benefit. You know, if Babylon prospers, well, you'll do very well in the slipstream of it. It's an example of the attitude that God wants his people to have. He wants those who are serious about living for him to have that sort of concern for those around about us. What does Jesus say in Luke 6, verse 27 and 28, for instance? He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first verse? I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And I guess that includes those you like, as well as those you don't. Whatever your circumstances, good or bad... Get on with life. Wherever you are, you are part of a community. Aim to make it better. And remember that as a believer, you have an added ingredient to bring to the party. You can pray to the Lord and be assured that God will hear your prayers for the community, the society, the city, the place where you have been placed. Tell me. Is this the way we tend to view the place where we work? The place where we study? The place where we live? 
or we do, do we just moan about the difficulties of it all? And what about our life as citizens of this country? I mean, I guess only an idiot would stand up in a sermon and talk about Brexit, but well, here goes. You know, you don't need to be Jeremiah to know that whatever way Brexit falls out, a lot of people are going to be disappointed. Fair comment, isn't it? Of course they are. And you don't need to be a prophet to say that probably virtually nobody is going to get everything they want. Fair enough, but what do you do? Sulk? Get annoyed? Blame politicians? Emigrate? Or do you do those things that work together for peace and prosperity? Do we get on with life? Do we keep on praying for our nation? Do we keep on praying for its leaders, whoever they may be? You know, I'm sure it's, there's a significance that all this is set in the context of the real Babylon. A great city, and in many ways an evil city. In other parts of the Bible, the idea of Babylon is often picked up as a metaphor for human societies and rebellion against God, and perhaps also the wider idea of, of urbanization. But you know, whichever way you take it, let's face it, Babylon is all around us. We live in an increasingly urbanized world, and we also here in the UK live in a society that in many, many ways is more and more opposed to God, a place where it is not always comfortable to follow Jesus. But it's places like Babylon that need people like us working to, to bless our society. It would be easy to retreat into our shells, but perhaps more than ever, every aspect of our world needs our prayers and our actions, a responsibility placed just not just on specialists like people like Jeremiah, but placed on all believers. At a personal, at a personal level, when life brings us disappointment, how do we respond? I believe that this chapter would encourage us, with the help of others probably, to make the effort to move forward and to turn outward rather than to turn inward. Now, of course, some situations can be very, very desperately difficult. Sometimes progress may only be measured in inches. But no matter how difficult, I believe that God would encourage us to make the effort to try to get on with life. But there was more to God's message than simply getting on with life. Secondly, God's message to the exile was, don't be distracted. A few minutes ago I mentioned that there were several possible reasons why the exiles in Babylon found it difficult to move forward. Shock, self-pity, inertia, those sort of things. But there was another reason. The exiles were allowing themselves to become distracted and deceived. In this case, by false prophets, people who claimed to declare God's word, but had not been called by God to do it, that were proclaiming in the name of God notions of their own invention and of their own making. People who were giving the exiles a false hope. 
Now, you may have mentioned that quite a lot of the chapter, including an awful lot that Emily read for us, was about these false prophets, about their influence, about the effect that they were having. But in verses 8 and 9, God's opinion of of, of them is this. Do not let the prophets and deceivers, diviners among you, deceive you. Do not listen to dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you. In my name, I have not sent them. Now, false prophets of one sort or another had caused a great deal of damage in Jerusalem. And as we saw right at the beginning of the reader, some of those prophets, so-called, had gone into exile in Babylon with the rest of the exiles. Verse 21 mentions two of them by name, Ahab and Zedekiah. And there were lots of other ones, I guess. And the exiles in Babylon were listening to them. Verse 15 tells us that the exiles were telling themselves that God had raised up prophets for them in Babylon. And they were giving these people time and they were paying attention to what they had to say. The reality was that the exiles in Babylon had learned absolutely nothing. The false prophets in Jerusalem had misled them. But, well, it was like a drug. They just had to get another fix of these false prophets. God's opinion of them was blunt. Verse 19, they have not listened to my words. And you exiles have not listened either. They were listening to anyone and everyone except God. And it was a cause of distraction and deception for them. Now, we're not told in detail what these false prophets in Babylon were saying, but it's a fair guess they were saying the same sort of thing as false prophets in Jerusalem. And we know what they were about. In the previous chapter, chapter 28, uh, we read about a prophet called Hananiah based in Jerusalem who had been claiming that the people who had been exiled to Babylon plus all the valuable items that had been looted to the temple would be coming back to Jerusalem in a couple of years' time. Now, if you look at the end of chapter 29, which, again, we didn't read this evening, you'll see a bit about somebody called Shemaiah. He was one of the exiles. He'd complained to the authorities in Jerusalem, demanding that something be done about Jeremiah, and in particular, about Jeremiah's letter. He obviously was a person, a believer, in the two-year idea. Because he was complaining that Jeremiah was telling the exiles that they're going to be in Babylon for a very long time and would have to settle down. Kind of confirms that the exiles were also clinging to a delusion that they'd be back in Jerusalem in no time. But you see what these false prophets were really doing. They were preaching a false hope that distracted the exiles from moving forward. You know, if you imagine you're going to be back in Jerusalem in a couple of years' time, why bother building a house? Why plant a garden? No point. They were being deceived. They were being distracted. They were wasting time. Time that could be used building the future God wanted for them was being frittered away. The irony of this was that the people who were causing the distraction were people with no future at all. More than half of this chapter is actually underlining the fact that the false prophets who were deceiving and distracting the people were living on borrowed time. They had no future at all themselves, and yet they were using what little time they had left to destroy the future of others. Verse 
And what's really interesting is why the false prophets were doing what they were doing. Do you remember what it said in verse 8? Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them, the false prophets, to have. You see, in part, what the false prophets were doing was, well, it was customer-led. The false prophets said what people wanted to hear. They catered for people's daydreams, I suppose you could say, at a world of fantasy. Here's the point. The exiles in Babylon were not simply deceived by clever, manipulative false prophets. That may have been part of it, but in reality, the exiles were complicit in the deception. There was part of them, perhaps a very big part of them, that wanted to be deceived, that wanted to be distracted, that wanted to put off the day when they had to face the reality of their situation and get on with making a life for themselves in Babylon. It wasn't unique to them. In the New Testament, Paul challenges exactly the same attitude, again in his second letter to Timothy, when he speaks about a time coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, uh, to, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears wants to hear. And it's very, very easy to be like that. To invite distractions into our lives, to flirt with deception. Now, if you're going to be talking about the sermon in your small groups uh, this, this week, one of the things you might like to do is to think about how we can become distracted from hearing God's word, from believing God's word, and doing God's will. Especially when we face difficulties or disappointment. Uh, For instance, how would you spot a false prophet in 2019? Probably wouldn't have a white cloak and a flowing beard, I can tell you that for free. Are there such things as false prophets in 2019? And if not, what, what would be their modern day equivalents? You know, what are the sort of people, what's the sort of teaching, what's the sort of idea that could be distracting or deceiving you from being responsive and following God's will, not thousands of years ago, but here and now in Hove in 2019? What about our love of simple answers? You know, somebody once said there are six really dangerous words. All you need to do is... Most life situations, if they're serious, are complicated. There aren't always simple answers. But, you know, do we daydream about those simple answers? And what about our daydreams? If we're honest, we all have them, because all of us would like the world to be different. They're not always good for us, are they? Especially if we start believing them. But something to think about. How could you be deceived or distracted in today's world because one of the things that God speaking through Jeremiah is warning us that as we face challenges of one sort or another we've got to avoid being distracted you know there are lots of things that we can do to help us steer clear of distractions and deceptions that keep us from following God's intention for our lives but perhaps one of the most helpful is the final idea that I want to draw out of this chapter this evening, and that's to take God's promises. 
You know, Jeremiah is often seen as a gloomy book. And you might feel that this chapter is is more of the same with its messages of judgments on false prophets. And maybe you don't feel that the message of get on with it either is all that cheerful. But that would be to miss out on the fact that the exile was not God's last word for his people. That in actual fact, yes, Jeremiah is a book about judgment, but there's a lot of positives as well that we can grab hold of. And you can see this in verses 10 to 14. If you want to sum up what Jeremiah is saying in this particular section in one word, I guess you could use the word restoration. God's positive is that he intends to restore his people. For the exiles and their descendants, there would be a physical restoration. After 70 years, they would be going back to Jerusalem. And you see that this is specifically mentioned in verses 10 and also verses 14. But it was more than just a physical restoration, going back to Judah. There would also be a spiritual restoration too. Why did the exiles get themselves into the situation they found themselves? It was because spiritually they turned their backs on God. They were good at the outward observers of religion. They knew how to do religion. But they'd lost sight of what God really wanted of them. A faith that reflected God's holiness and righteousness. A faith that was single-minded and focused on, on God alone. And God's promise was not just that they would be restored to their homeland, but that they would also be restored to their heartland. Look at verses 12 and 13. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Two promises. And both were kept. The exiles were able to return from Babylon to Jerusalem 70 years later at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But more than that, the hearts of the people were changed. The men and women who returned with Ezra were not perfect, far from it, but where they were not the same people as those who had gone into exile. For all their faults, they would be zealous for the purity of Israel in a way that their ancestors had never been. The exile was a time when God had worked in the hearts of people for good, and they were different. Verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You know, we often think that the exile of Judah was a punishment. And in a sense, that's absolutely true, it was. But to see it only in those terms is, is just to simplify it. It wasn't just punishment. For God, it had a positive purpose and a positive intention. God's intention was to prosper and not harm, to give hope and not future, to change people's hearts and minds as well as their geographical location. And that's still God's promise to all his people, to all those who are trusting in him for their salvation and for their future, to do us good, whatever our circumstances may be. 
As we said right at the beginning, we may not have to face God's judgment as individuals or as a nation in quite the same way as the people living at the time of Jeremiah did. Although we need to be realistic and recognize that that is a possibility. But none of us can guarantee a life free from misfortune, disappointment, or difficulty. What we can be sure of is that God will be with us through those times, no matter how bleak life may be in the here and now. No matter how distant the idea of a happy ending may seem, God has a good future for us. God has a good good future for us because, in a sense, no matter how difficult this life may be, for those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, there is more to life than this life, isn't there? You know, we believe and look forward to eternity with God forever in a time when all life's difficulties have been swept away. And God is often very, very gracious. And he is often very, very good to us in this life as well, is he not? Get on with life. Don't be distracted. Take God's promises. God's message to this group of exiles in Babylon was, yeah, get on with life. But implicit in that was the idea that God would be with them. Remember, God encouraged them to pray. You know, God would have encouraged them to pray if he'd no intention of paying any attention to their prayers, would he? God was still with them. He was still listening to them. God's message was to avoid being distracted from carrying out his will, among other things, so that he could continue to work in their lives and perform his purpose for them. And God's message was to grab hold of the positive things that God wanted to do for them, And live as if they believed in those promises. And that's God's invitation to each one of us. Whatever our situation, whatever our circumstances, get on with our lives. Don't be distracted if things are difficult. Remember God's promises. And we can be confident that this can happen. What does Jesus say in John 13, 6, 33? In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. We have every reason to be confident. Just as the people in Babylon, exiled from Judah, had. Every reason to be confident because God is in charge of the world. The world is not in charge of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Yes, we know that in this world we will have trouble. But Heavenly Father, thank you that you have overcome the world. Your Son has overcome the world. Heavenly Father, thank you that the one who was with us is so much greater than the one, the forces, the powers, the principalities, the whatevers that are against us. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be confident to go forward with life because you are with us. Amen.